Welcome back to Seeing Life from a Different Angle. This is podcast number two. I foolishly made the mistake last week of starting the podcast without really thinking about the fact that people might be listening to this who have no idea who I am. So taking the advice of my brothers, I thought I would introduce myself very, very briefly and tell you who I am and how I came to this place and then move on to something more important. Um, especially as I promised this week for those who are on Facebook or Instagram and who have seen the, the posts on there put up by my wonderful, lovely daughter, Becca, who is in charge of all that technology for me since I have no idea what any of social media really means. But um, anyway, stepping back, I am um, I have been an outpatient psychotherapist for the past 26 years. I started reading Freud when I was 13 and was fascinated by the workings of the human psyche. And it always really you know, excited me with the possibilities, the desire to really try to understand why people do what they do and why they feel what they feel. And you know, I was sitting down last night watching Shadowlands, which is a movie about C.S. Lewis and his relationship with his wife, Joy. And so Mary and I were watching that, Mary being my wife, were watching the um, movie and it really was about loss and about how it is that we come to face loss in our life or how he faced loss in his life with the death of his wife. And so I think when we think about it, loss is everywhere around us. And, you know, recently I decided to stop doing outpatient psychotherapy and it was a loss in many ways, not just for me, I think, but for my patients as well, who, you know, have all, some have moved on to other therapists and have all responded really well to, um, to this change in their lives, even though it is a big change. But um, I have, as I say, been in mental health for a long period of time, 26 years as an outpatient psychotherapist and 34 years in mental health. So that's about me. Um, but let's go back to where we began, which is to talk about, for instance, like C.S. Lewis and Shadowlands and about loss and grief in our lives. Maybe a good place to begin is to think about how we relate to other people. You know, a long time ago, I came up with this metaphor which I think is an interesting one when we think about how we relate to people in our lives, especially when we relate to people that we would consider obstacles in our life. And the metaphor is this, that you imagine you're taking a walk over to the woods and you want to go see the forest. And so you walk over and you find yourself three inches from a tree. And now this tree seems to be an obstacle in your way. And so you have three primary ways of dealing with this. The first way, the most unhealthy, is to take out your axe and to obliterate the tree, to destroy it completely so that it no longer is in your way. And yet when we think about it, you know, what we've done is to take out this tree, this individual, which is really what the tree represents, this individual or this groups of people in our lives that really are a part of where it is we were going in the first place. 
and I'll get back to that in a minute. The second option is, again, three inches from this tree, to decide to sidestep the tree, take a step to the right or to the left, and then we can see the forest. Again, we fail to recognize that we have put the tree in our way and that the tree being a part of the forest was something that now we've missed out on. But there is a third way. And the third way is to step back from the tree, realizing that we had put the tree in our own way, that we had made the tree an obstacle. Of all three of these options, the third clearly is the healthiest for us. At the same time, I think it falls short of something that is really important in our lives. You know, C.S. Lewis had written this book, and I couldn't recommend it more. And the book is called The Abolition of Man. And the first chapter of the three chapters of this book talks about the idea of subjectivity. And by subjectivity, what he means is this, is that, you know, we tend to think about our own thoughts. We tend to think and allow ourselves to live within our own feelings. And we don't take the risk of stepping outside of those thoughts and feelings and understanding that there are other things in life besides those things. One of the examples that I know has been talked about in relationship to this book is imagine a protest. And at this protest, you have this individual who goes to this protest thinking everyone here thinks the way I think. Everyone here feels the way I feel. And then they get upset or angry, whoever they are, whether they're on the left or the right or the middle, it doesn't matter. One way or another, they are thinking that the person that they're protesting, the cause that they're protesting for, you know, is not hearing what it is that they're thinking, not hearing what it is that they're feeling. In other words, this other person or this other group doesn't think or feel the way that I do. And when we think about the subjective perspective, Lewis calls it this, that we tend to be, as he referred to it, men of the stomach or men of the head. Men of the stomach or people of the stomach, if you prefer, are people who are all about their own feelings. They feel that everyone feels the way that they feel. And people of the head or men of the head are individuals who believe that everyone thinks what they think. And Lewis talked about the idea that we need to become men of the chest or people of the chest, that we need to move to a place of reason, that when we interact with other people, we see things from a reason perspective. This doesn't mean that we stop allowing ourselves to think or feel. Absolutely not. As a matter of fact, that's incredibly important. You know, there was a patient of Freud's who had come back from therapy with Freud and when she came home to America, her father asked her, what did you learn from Professor Freud? And her response was that feelings are everything. And so we have to accept the fact, we should accept the fact, that our feelings really do matter. But we also, as a place of individuals as a men of the chest, we also have to think about the fact that other individuals don't feel or don't think the way that we do. We need to try to see them objectively to take the risk of reaching out and trying to understand how it is that they think or how it is that they feel. This kind of brings us back to what we were talking about last week. 
when we talked about living inside that myopic reality. Because what happens? Why do we stop allowing ourselves to go where it is that other people go, to see that other people feel differently or think differently? That goes back to what we had spoken about in terms of the fear and the pathological ways that our ego has learned to deal with life. And so we avoid, you know, some people, most people, avoid believing that other people think or feel differently than they do. So let's step back to where we began and think about that third option of that tree that is only three inches from our face. You know, we've chosen to step back and we've chosen this option, hopefully because at least some subjective level we realize I put myself in this place. A tree isn't my obstacle or more importantly, that person or that group, they're not really my obstacle. You know, I feel this way about them or I think this way about them. But there's also an option 3A and an option 3B. And it goes back to what Lewis was talking about in terms of seeing people as men of the chest, seeing people objectively. If I'm a person of the chest, then one not only do I look at this other person now that I have stepped back from and no longer see as an obstacle, but I start to wonder, you know, do they what do they think and what do they feel? And that allows me to kind of see them from a different perspective. It means I have to face my fears and I have to face the reality of the way I've seen things up to this point in time. I have to see life from that different angle to add a few degrees to my understanding of what's going on in the world. But it allows me to do so and imagine that they look at life differently than I do. And that's step 3A or option 3A. But there is a 3B. And this is where we come into a relationship to the ideas of loss and grief. Option 3B is this, that we must seek to know or desire to seek to know why they think and feel the way that they do. We have to be honest with ourselves that through most of our lives, we don't really pay that much attention to what somebody else is thinking or feeling. We pay even less attention to the why they're thinking or feeling the way that they do. You know, Aristotle talked about the idea that we must stop asking the question why and just think about the action of why somebody acts the way that they do. The why doesn't matter. It's the act that matters. But I would disagree because I think, you know, it's like the old axiom, actions speak louder than words. But I would add this is that motivation speaks loudest of all. The motivation of is, is the question of why. And I think that that brings us to the question or the thought of loss and grief in this way. One of the things that I have found through all these years of work and in my own life as well, is that if we don't ask the question why, and if we do ask the question why, that there are consequences for that. You know, when we lose someone that's valuable in our lives, like I lost my mother, you know, there are questions that I wish I could have asked her, things I wish I could have known. Because grief is not just a one-step process. Grief is three steps, I think. 
that there are three phases to it, but we don't always go through these phases. We oftentimes stay at the first phase, which is to feel the pain of this loss. But the problem is we get so stuck in that subjective view of what this loss means to me that we don't take option number 3A and think, well, what, what was going on in their lives? You know, what were they thinking? What were they feeling? What were they going through? Indeed, what were their lives like? Which is really to take us to the second phase of grieving. You know, once we've gotten through or once we've started this process of recognizing, okay, I've had this fantastically painful loss in my life and it hurts my ego. What it is that I would look for from this person, what it is I needed from this person, how I long for my ego needs to be met by this person is no longer going to happen. And so I've got this void, this emptiness, this space in my life psychologically, and it pulls at everything. It pulls at my thoughts. It pulls at my feelings. It pulls at the very core of who I believe myself to be and how I relate to the world. And yet, if we stay there, we oftentimes get stuck. We become so confused with the one big question that oftentimes people will ask, which is, you know, why did God let this person go? And why am I in such pain? Why do I have to suffer such pain? And even one step further, how can there be a God if I'm in pain? But I think we hit upon something really important here, which is the realization that that is still remains so focused around ourselves and around our subjective view of the world. And as long as we stay stuck in that place, you know, we'll never really seem to understand the idea of a God who could punish or who could leave us in such pain or who could let someone we love perish, sometimes often in very painful and overwhelmingly sad ways. But if we allow ourselves to move on to the second phase of grieving, it shifts. There's a shift from that subjective view, being men of the stomach or men of the head, or people of the stomach or people of the head, into being people of the chest. You know, we start to ask ourselves, who was this person? What did they go through in their lives? What did they experience? And there are great benefits to this phase because we come to really know what it is that another person has been through in their lives. We don't know why yet, but we know what. And that's hugely important. You know, when someone has suffered a trauma in their childhood and that trauma spills over in terms of how they raise their children, for instance, you know, those are moments that we can now say, okay, you know, if I understand that this person went through this incredible trauma in childhood, now I can get what it is that they've experienced and what it meant to them and what effects it had upon them. But we also need to move on to the third phase, which is to move from just being people of the chest to also being individuals who care a great deal about why the other person thinks or feels what they think or feel. In other words, what happened to them 
when these traumatic events, for instance, occurred, what happened to them to leave them treating other people the way they did or being in pain the way that they were and spilling it on to other people in their lives. Because if we do that, you know, it gives us an opportunity to be able to see more of this person as a whole. But it also, as I said a few minutes ago, brings with it a great deal of pain. Because one of the complications of asking the question why is I don't have the answer. And I'm left with that pain. I'm left with the pain of knowing that I didn't take the opportunity to know this person deeply enough in their life. To be able to ask them the whys when they were still living. Now, it's not that these whys when they're still living would be easy either. You know, the number of times that, you know, we want to avoid those things out of our own fear and out of our own pathology. You know, that we desperately want to keep things going, maintaining the status quo in any relationship. Keep us from asking these very important questions. But we lose out as a byproduct of it. Because we don't stop long enough to think outside of ourselves, to be people of the chest enough with love and compassion to step outside of ourselves and say, you know, there's something more to this person than just the fact that they have their own thoughts and their own feelings and their own reasons for it. It's really for that reason that when we think about it, we never really stop grieving. We never really stop feeling a measure of pain, but it's a different type of pain. Like when we think about the first phase of grieving, the pain is about our own loss. And while that loss is real and it is valid and it is important, it remains very subjective. The second phase, you know, comes at us and for want of a better way to put it, forces us to see something and see more angles than we had seen before, a different degree of perspective on this other person. And the third phase brings with it, you know, not just the objective perspective now, but also a depth of concern and love for this person that we wish we could have expressed when they were alive, you know, or when they were still a part of our lives. I'm not speaking just as a therapist or as a former therapist, you know, but I'm also speaking as a person who's been through loss himself. And, you know, loss is an incredibly powerful thing that we've been dealing with since we were infants. But the loss I'm thinking in particular of is the loss of my mom seven years ago and the powerful effect that that loss had on my life. And I think about... When I think of her, I think about some of those events and experiences where now looking back at it, I wish I had asked why, you know, to explore more deeply what it was that had occurred in her life and not just not just what had happened, but why she felt the way she did about it, why she acted the way she acted when she experienced these pains. It's like I said last week, you know, we are all children in adults' clothing. And 
part of the goal of life, I think, is to be able to begin to slough off those layers of clothing so we can get back to the core of who we are. And I think that that's part of the complication we have in human relationships is that we're so desperate to protect ourselves, so desperate to not feel fear and to not feel pain or to see pain as something we have to run away from that we avoid allowing ourselves to see this other child standing right beside us, a child who may be our mother or maybe our father or brother or sister or friend or girlfriend or boyfriend, wife, grandchildren. We're so avoidant of the idea of pain because we can't imagine a life where we have to go through loss and suffering and run the risk of not having our needs met, of not feeling that we are loved or valued. Even though, as we talked about, not all that we call love is love, and the sad reality of it is, I think, that when we grieve over someone, but we only allow ourselves to go through the first phase of grief, just that subjective perspective being either people of the stomach or people of the chest, I'm sorry, of the head, we fail to allow ourselves to love this person as deeply as this person deserved. You know, I asked my father a while ago how much people knew about him. And his response was an honest and sad one that most people didn't know him and maybe about 10 or 15% of himself was really known to anyone. And isn't that in its own way kind of a statement of the greatest loss. How do we get to a place where people don't really know who we are? Why do we hide so much from what it is that we are or who it is we are? And it goes back to that fear and that pathology, what I call the fear pathology cycle, that we are so desperate to get our needs met because we have moved so far away from who it is we really were. You know, the core of who we were at one time. That loving child who longed to love and to be loved, you know, has just disappeared. Under layers and layers and layers of unhealthy ways of dealing with life and all the fear that went along with them. And much like the loss of someone that we love deeply, passionately, you know, we put aside that little child and treat that child inside of ourselves as if they really don't matter anymore. You know, they're not that consequential. You know, think about it. You know, we say to ourselves, you know, no one really knows me. But let's be honest, we don't allow ourselves to be known and we don't even know ourselves anymore. We're so buried underneath our own fear and our, underneath our own pathology that we don't even allow ourselves to be seen. And really, what a great loss that is. We have to strive to move away as much as we can from that subjective perspective of life. We have to do what Lewis talked about. We have to work toward becoming people of the chest. I know that you feel differently than me. I know that you think differently than me. And even if it frightens me, to imagine that you see the world differently than I do or feel differently than I do about what's going on in life, 
even though that frightens me, I have to challenge that within myself. I have to follow that path of anxiety and say to myself, you know, this person lives in a different fence than I live in. You know, it's like a moment when inside of my own fence, you know, that fenced in yard of my reality, suddenly I'm standing there and suddenly this object comes flying into my yard and I have no idea what this is and why it's there and it freaks me out and it frightens me. That is the objective view of life. That is the reality that if I peered over my fence or I knocked on a portion of my fence or I started seeing life from a different angle, that there's something more there, that there is another world, a world full of other individuals who think and feel differently than me. And if I truly want to love and value these people, I need to ask myself and ask them the why. Why do they think? Why do they feel the way that they do? Thank you for joining me today. I appreciate you listening. Be well.